live from the JLE in London, you're listening to History for the Curious, the podcast. 20 minutes with Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch, hosted by myself, Menat Reisner. Join us as we cross continents, sail through the centuries, tracing lives, uncovering events, and following epic journeys to reveal the untold stories and the mysteries that have impacted our history and shaped us into who we are today. Good evening and welcome back, Rabbi Hirsch. This is the final part of our Origins of Christianity series. We have received an unprecedented amount of feedback. People obviously have a lot of questions, and it seems like a topic that people are looking for clarity on. We can't address all of them, but just to start with, we've received two questions, and they were asked in different ways from a number of listeners. And I think one needs to be answered right at the very beginning. So Esther from the USA wrote, how do Christians explain and support this origin story? Basically, if there's such obvious historic man-made flaws in this religion, as you so aptly described last week, why have they not been noticed? How can two billion people be duped? Duped about what? About the texts? About the history? They are brought into a religion which is about faith, not about doing. It's a non-intrusive religion in most areas, accepting perhaps certain rules of marriage. So why would I need to know the history, the origins, what happened in Nicaea? I mean, I doubt 5% of Christians can identify the word Nicaea. The New Testament has no impact on what I have to do or believe. So why would I even read it? And definitely not systematically. There's no dafyomi. There's no reason to be knowledgeable in any of the books of the New Testament. They're in the background. They are books full of ideas rather than books full of halacha or commandments. Yeah, but there's still stuff that says you have to do. You have to be charitable. You have to pray. But without any guidelines, there's no halacha. So there's no need for textual research you know, pray. If prayer does not have specific times and laws, it simply becomes a good idea, a good piece of general advice. As history's shown, the churches are quite empty. Right. Although they would say that about the synagogues, the synagogues and the too. defection away from orthodoxy. <laughs> what people have chosen doesn't necessarily prove a religion one way or the other. Right. But they have no knowledge of their history because it's irrelevant to their religious commitment. Even if they do go to church every Sunday and identify as Christians and pass on Christianity to the next generation. Whereas Judaism, with its hundreds of mitzvahs and 24-7 set of things to do and not to do, the text is crucial and it has to be known to the general Jewish populace. Learning and reading in Christianity was reserved purely for the clergy. The average Christian will never in their lifetime analyze text. To explain how limited the need for verification in explaining events, I'm going to use an example, which I was going to touch on later, of C.S. Lewis. So he is very famous, especially in the UK. He wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. He was a Christian theologian. And in fact, the whole story of Narnia is the story of Yeshu. The lion is sacrificed. He comes back to life. Okay, for some other time. But you have here an intelligent author of note who in 1942 gave the following argument its most memorable formulation, and he then published it about 10 years later. 
And he said as follows, There is no need for us to prove if Yeshu is God or not. If he were not divine, he would have to be either a liar or a lunatic. Since he is neither a liar or a lunatic, he must be divine. <laughs> I mean, really? You know, an intelligent author, Bemet, the premise is completely faulty. From a logical perspective, you start by saying he could be one of three things, but two of them that, you know, that he could have been a liar or a lunatic couldn't have been because he's the son of God. So therefore, he must have been the son of God. It, it's completely circular reasoning to give three possibilities and exclude two of them without any proof and therefore conclude that the third one is true. That's just a statement of belief. Besides for which, there are other alternatives. Perhaps the Yeshua in the Bible isn't the one in history. Maybe he's not a liar or a lunatic or a god, but maybe he's a legend. If we take this further into a tangible example of text that is simply irreconcilable with history because of a lack of any corroborating evidence, but which Christians neither know about or perhaps would particularly question even if they did. So in Matthew, we are told about the resurrection. Uh, the story given is that he was crucified on the first day of Pesach, which is a Friday, Good Friday. And three days later, on what will become Easter Monday, he is resurrected from the dead. And this is the text. Now, from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and there was an earthquake, and graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and they went into the holy city and appeared unto many people. So it was obviously quite an event, an earthquake, a lunar or solar eclipse for three hours over the entire land, and many dead people resurrected and appearing to audiences. You could hardly claim you didn't notice. Right. This is not a localized miracle. This would have been noticed by hundreds of thousands of people. And beyond being noticed, it would have been recorded. Somebody would have remembered the name, at least one of the saints who climbed out of his grave and went wandering downtown. <laughs> now, John Remsburg, in his book, Christ, a critical review of the evidence of his existence, lists at least 40 writers who lived either during the time or within not long after that Yeshu um, is, you know, the time that, that, that he was supposed to have lived in. You have uh, Seneca, Plutarch, uh, Tacitus, Apollonius, uh, Pliny the Elder, Lucian, uh, plenty of them. Uh, according to him, there are enough of the writings of these authors to form an entire library. Yet, in this entire mass of literature, aside from two forged passages in Josephus, there is no mention of Yeshu, of the disciples, of the apostles, which creates the embarrassment from the silence of history about the foundations of Christianity. And it's not just that none of them mention the event. They don't even write that other people claim that such an event ever happened. But you're talking about external evidence, yeah. and I can argue that there's no external evidence about the giving of the Torah either. That's absolutely true, but the Torah is an event which is one and a half thousand years earlier, where there are no contemporary writers in any nation or any religion at the time. So there's no comparison. Mm -hmm. 
And it's not just that these are grandiose claims without evidence. It's the fact that it was not written at the time and clearly written by people who had a mindset that was not Jewish but pagan. And they're trying to describe a, you know, sort of a Jewish country and a Jewish landscape. So you're saying that text and textual knowledge holds little value for the average Christian? Almost none. Well. Uh, I mean, because what would, why do they need it to be Christian? Well, okay. Sounds like very strong points. So back to history. Can you recap where we left off in the last episode? Okay. So from the time of the death of Yeshu for the next 300 years, Christianity had many different groups, beliefs, even texts. And only after Constantine the Great became Christian in 312 and convened 300 bishops to Nicaea in 325, was the church forced into accepting one set of beliefs, at which stage all the other sects were declared heretical. And the largest two groups, the Gnostics and the uh, Arians, were now no longer acceptable. It was also in the 4th century that we mentioned that we can speak of the New Testament, because it was written then and Given the almost total illiteracy of the ancient world, it was written for a very select audience with very little scrutiny, and almost anything could and was introduced as authentic because there was no critical audience to review it. And therefore, unsurprisingly, today there are over 5,700 extant manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. So you have the church fathers who wrote, who amended, who introduced, and this is in the 4th and 5th century. Moving on to the 8th century, one of the most significant Christian documents, the donation, which was shown to the king of the Franks. It tells the story of how Constantine in the 4th century, the emperor contracted leprosy all over his body. He had a dream. Peter and Paul told him, find Pope Sylvester, who was then in hiding. The Pope will cure you. And once he had recovered, he was to restore Christian churches throughout the world. And he was then miraculously healed. And at that point, Constantine the Great, in the name of the entire Roman Empire, in the early 4th century, gave the following gift to the Pope, and to all of his successors. This is the document, and I quote, Inasmuch as our imperial power is earthly, we have decreed that the sacred see of Peter shall be exalted above our empire and earthly throne. We convey to Sylvester, the Pope, our palace and all provinces and palaces and districts of the city of Rome and Italy and of the regions of the West. Now, King Pepin, the father of Charlemagne, was very impressed, and the outcome of this meeting was perhaps the most significant change in Europe for centuries, because it means that the kings are all subject to the Pope. So Pepin goes to war, he defeats the Lombards in 786 CE, and he gives to the Pope all the lands that were rightly his by word of the donation, which is a bit of a shame because the donation was a forgery. How do we know? It was a fabrication. You know, the scholarship at the time was such that no one saw through it, and it wasn't until a papal aide, Lorenzo Valla, took it apart line by line in 1440 that it was proven to be a fraud. 
Valor showed that the Pope at the time of the donation wasn't Sylvester. It was Militiades. And the text refers to Constantinople. But at the time, that city was still called by its original name of Byzantium. And the donation wasn't written in classical Latin, but in a later form, which didn't exist at the time. In a hundred irrefutable ways, he shot the document to pieces. So what happened to the Pope? Well, by then it was 1440. It's too late. By then the Pope had enormous power. He had a standing army. He had a treasury of millions. And based on the donation document, the Pope in the late 11th century issued the Pope's principles, amongst which are that it may be permitted to him to depose emperors, that he himself may be judged by no one, and that the Roman Church has never erred, nor will it err to all eternity. But if such a scandal arose, why wasn't this? What scandal? You mean in 1440? Yeah. So at the time, they said, fine, the document is false, but the premise on which it rests is, you know, the Teresh pair, and it happened anyway. Messiah. Uh, who was going to cross swords at a time when the vast, vast majority of Europe was illiterate and the few who were literate were part of the church, essentially? So, right. you know, who's so going to challenge it, it? Kept it a secret within their own confines. Very easily. And this is just one example of forgery and its outcome. But, you know, whenever the church didn't have enough historical evidence, they simply forged it. Hildebrand, Gregory, Urban II, on a scale unheard of in Western culture. In 1073, they invoked a mass of documents in a 50-year struggle that they had. But of 324 passengers, only 11 were genuine. And Thomas Aquinas, who didn't read Greek, but only Latin, and who wrote the second most important work written by a Catholic, the Summa Theologica, ironically wrote that heretics and forgers should be executed, not realizing that he was relying on manufactured history in ways which today are obvious to spot. So let's bear in mind those Pope's principles in other words, that he may be judged by no one. And take a look at Edward Gibbon's multi-volume work on the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, possibly the most authoritative work written on those years. I will quote three extracts only. There are many, and these are all authenticated. John Twelfth became Pope in 955. The Emperor Otto of Germany wrote John a letter in 962 asking him to step down as Pope. The letter states as follows. Everyone, clergy as well as laity, accuses you, holiness, of homicide, perjury, sacrilege, castration of a cardinal, and incest with your relatives, including two of your sisters. John responded by letter. He warned them that if they deposed him, he would excommunicate them all. John's family raised an army to give him safe passage home. In Rome, he resumed the papacy and then maimed or executed all those who had contributed to his exile. He was 25 years old. He achieved a lot in, in so short. Yep. I won't mention how he died. In 1415, uh, Pope John XXIII, about whom the church agreed that he was the legitimate pope, but because of his behavior, he was summoned to a grand council. 
and the charges against him, Gibbon tells us, were reduced from 54 to 5. The most scandalous charges were suppressed. The Pope was only accused of piracy, murder, rape, sodomy, and incest, and he steadfastly refused to resign. This is the leader of the church, not one of the many religious representatives, not a bishop. This is the one about whom it is said that he is the representative of Christos on earth. Okay. Pope Innocent IV, this is the last of the examples, who was Pope between 1243 and 1254. He had a dispute with the emperor, with Frederick II, so he was forced to leave Rome. So he took the papacy to Lyon, and only when the emperor died could he go back to Rome. When he is leaving Lyon, he gets Cardinal Hugo, in the Pope's name, to write to the people of Lyon a letter of gratitude. The document, which is dated 1250, is one of the most infamous in papal history, as follows. During our residence in your city, we, the Roman Curia, have been a very charitable assistance to you. On our arrival, we found scarcely three or four purchasable sisters of love. Whilst at our departure, we leave you, so to say, one brothel that extends from the western gate to the eastern gate. That's what he writes that the people of Lyon should be grateful for. Wow, goodness. Okay. When did this all change and Pope sort of became more... When there was far more scrutiny. When, first of all, Luther starts the Reformation in the church in the beginning of the 1500s about the sale of indulgences, etc. And the church now has to become more accountable to itself. But ultimately, it's when... The um, Industrial Revolution starts, education is open to far more people, a middle class emerges, and at that stage, the nobility and the clergy don't control the country anymore, don't literally own the country anymore, and that uh, brings an end to the primacy, uh, but not to the numbers who identify that it tends to be that over the last 50, 60 years, the reason the Catholics have kept their numbers is because their adherents now come in many ways from South America and from Africa. The less exposure to absolute education is available, the easier it is. Whereas in countries, Catholic countries, Poland, Italy, Ireland, the numbers have dwindled because of exposure to education and because of a lack of because of all the scandals and various other things. It's not because they're necessarily more knowledgeable in the text. As we said earlier, that has not changed. But there are questions that have been asked and they're easier to pursue. But religious Christians today, when confronted with the popes of yesteryear and all their wrongdoings, what do they respond? So if they're not Catholic, they'll say, well, that was the Catholics. <laughs> and even if they are Catholic, they will say, well, that was the papacy. It didn't represent Catholicism, although it did. Or that was that particular pope. And when you, you know, name, because we haven't spoken about the Borgias. You know, whenever anyone talks about depravity in the papacy, they talk about the Borgias. We haven't spoken about them, right? That's, you know, there's plenty more examples. They're uncomfortable. Right. Okay. We are now changing the direction of this podcast for a minute or so to tell you that this coming week on Sunday and Monday 11th to 12th December JLE is holding a matching funds fundraiser 
and History for the Curious has taken a page, offering the opportunity to dedicate a podcast or an entire series. So check out charityextra.com forward slash JLE and look for our History for the Curious page. There will also be a very amusing look at History for the Curious on a two-minute video where you'll actually be able to see the two of us, that we are, in fact, real people, not just voices. And that will be available on the Charity Extra page you just mentioned, and hopefully on Spotify and Podbean as well. Um, We'll have to speak to the technical team for that. Okay, thank you all. And back to our podcast, The Church. How did it change through the last 1,500 years? Because it's gone through a metamorphosis. Can you describe the journey a bit? We don't really have the time to do all of that. I will take one example, which is important because of its uh, religious significance. In the Middle Ages, in the 1500s, you have the Council of Trent, which introduces into Christianity, into Catholicism in particular, one of the most pagan ideas to become part of Catholic dogma. And in fact, it would impact the Jews directly, and that's transubstantiation. Basically, during communion in church, as you may or may not know... You might have to translate a few of these words. So, a person files past, the, the whole congregation files past the priest, and they are given a wafer to eat, a very thin wafer to eat, and some wine to drink. Except this isn't food and drink. The Catholic faith declares it has always been the conviction of the Church of God that by the consecration of the bread and wine, there takes place a change to the substance of the bread into the substance of the body of Christos and with the wine into the substance of his blood meaning that the bread and wine that they ingest are not symbols of the body and blood. They are the body and blood of Christos. It's almost cannibalism. Well, some in the Anglican Church have compared the consumption of the Eucharist to (laughs) cannibalism, (laughs) but the Lutherans are on board, and as are most churchgoers, particularly the Catholics. But this idea that the wafer contains the body of their saviour, Jews were burnt at the stake for numerous times. Now, church anti-Semitism is not tonight's topic. I'm not going to dwell on it, but just to mention that the massacres in southern Germany in 1298 arose from the charge of what's called desecration of the host. Jews breaking into the church to stab the wafer with a dagger in order to kill Yeshu a second time. Well, it's almost like the the blood libels, the first type. Right, but this is completely pagan to be ingesting the body. It's so non-Jewish, obviously, from its origins of where it started. So you mentioned that church anti-Semitism is not tonight's topic, but I note we haven't spoken much about the relationship between the church and the Jews in the last thousand years. Also, I mean, in a way, related, uh, a very big topic. Perhaps I'll take one important area and you get an insight from that and that is the very last part of his life that that which the mel gibson's film is entirely about the crucifixion its meaning and how it has impacted jewish history 
Now, the last part of his life and his death is described in detail in both Matthew and Mark. And a choice is given to the crowd between two people as to whom to kill. And the Jews, allegedly, all called out to the Roman governor, crucify Yeshu. And they add, his blood be upon us and upon our children. In other words, the responsibility of his death falls on us and all our children. And Christianity, despite being the religion of love, ascribed this crime to every Jew that ever walked the planet from that moment onwards. We, as a nation, each one of us individually, is permanently marked by that alleged story 2,000 years ago. And without question, in Matthew, we have the most infamous and anti-Semitic line in Christianity, which has been responsible, arguably, for shedding the blood of thousands of Jews. For the past 1,500 years, it has featured in every church, every Good Friday. You know, it's not coincidental that this original blood libel has been transmogrified into the Pesach blood libel of matzahs baked with the blood of Christian children, because Good Friday is basically Pesach time. And what we need to understand is what the narrative accuses the Jews of deicide we killed god not homicide not even regicide which is the murder of a king and if you can kill god there is no crime that you wouldn't stoop to to commit there's no crime you wouldn't dream of committing simply put no one in history has ever committed this crime nothing is worse and that's what the jews did and therefore his blood is upon them forever because this affects eternity. And even though on the cross, Yeshu says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, Christianity couldn't forgive the Jews because the mark of Cain was on them forever. This crime is so far-reaching and so shocking that nowadays the church has reinterpreted it. They had to. Because left in its original form, as it was through the centuries, it makes Christianity an unbelievably vindictive religion, and no one in the West is going to touch Christianity. You are blaming the uh, as yet unborn children for all generations for sins which some Jews committed 2,000 years ago, and calling yourself the religion of love, or it's never going to work. So the church is forced to say differently nowadays. You know, according to one Catholic website, it was simply a misunderstanding. <clears throat> according to a number of others, he meant it metaphorically. But the church didn't spend centuries metaphorically caricaturing the Jews as the devil and Satan in literature, in art, in architecture, all based on this line. If we were to quote Alice in Wonderland, there's a, a piece there when Humpty Dumpty says that when I use a word, it means just what I choose it to mean, nothing more, nothing less. And uh, Alice responds by saying, the question is whether you can make words mean so many different things. I think I've heard everything now, Rabbi Hirsch <laughs> quoting Alice in Wonderland. Absolutely. <laughs> it's a classic. And it took until 1962 for the church to actually openly and categorically repudiate it. The Second Vatican Council, as a result of Pope John XXIII, the second Pope John XXIII, there were two of them, believe it or not, because the other one got erased 
because of his um, crimes, shall we say. And this Pope was one of the Hasidic Umas Ha'olam, recognized by Yad Vashem for his role during World War II. He rejected the idea of a collective, multi-generational Jewish guilt for the crucifixion of Yeshu. And he composed a remarkable prayer. He said, the mark of Cain is stamped upon our foreheads, talking about his fellow Christians. Across the centuries, our brother Abel, the Jews, has lain in blood which we drew. Forgive us for the curse we falsely attributed to their name as Jews. Forgive us for crucifying you a second time in their flesh. So this is a Pope talking about or taking church responsibility for centuries of death. Didn't he get into trouble for that? He might have been poisoned, but that's a, you know, conspiracy theory. theory. Yes. Well, so the crime we were accused of would contribute to 1,500 years of history of persecution. It's scary when you think about it. Yes. Yet, that's not the sort of the worst of it all, because even though we were accused of deicide, it makes no sense theologically, literally no sense at all for three reasons. One of them because you can't kill a god? Um, <laughs> no, if, well, okay. We'll explain why that would technically have been possible, but wasn't. Because in Christianity, very clearly, the person that we put to death was man, not God. We can't be accused of killing God. Because only as a result of Yeshu suffering and dying on the cross, which only a human being can, can all future of mankind make a profession of faith in him and have their sins forgiven. But he had to die as a human. We mentioned, and it's worth perhaps going over this, um, you know, listen again to what we said about him being 100% man and 100% God. And it had to be that way. He couldn't die as God. And therefore, it is an unfathomed level of deceit to accuse us of killing God. He came to this world to die for our sins, for which he had to be human. You know, in Mark 10, you find it most clearly. He gave up his life as a ransom for the many. He becomes the redeemer, in other words, divine, through this act. He gave up his life so that we allegedly could all have one. And that makes the accusation of deicide false. It's not just semantics. It's fundamental because the crime that we are accused of is so extreme. That's one problem. The second is that as he is on the cross, his last words that he says, as recorded in the Gospels, are, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Abandoned him? This is incomprehensible. He came to this world to die. And now he is dying. He feels God has abandoned him. And just by the way, contrast this with the death of our greatest sage, with Rabbi Akiva, who is murdered by the Romans. His death is so sublime that even Moses is shocked when he views it, as the Gomorrah Menachus makes clear. And Rabbi Akiva tells his pupils he has waited his whole life to serve God, Bechol Nafshcha, with his entire soul. Yeah. So you're saying that the whole dialogue of the crucifixion is completely wrong? Or suspect, yes. But now we come to the most important point. The most important is the third. As we've mentioned in both last weeks, Christianity revolves around the concept of making a profession of faith. You make it, you're done. You don't make it, you're done for. And part of that reason is the concept of original sin. 
in Christianity, every human being is born in sin. It's unavoidable. Hence, you know, the elevation of celibacy and of perpetual virginity of Mary. And whereas Judaism says we recognize the sin of Adam affecting the world, but as individuals in Judaism, my decisions, my choices in life on a daily basis build my personal world to come. Whereas in Christianity, it is impossible to get out of your sins without a profession of faith because when he came down into this world to die it's not just for the sins of mankind not the just the personal ones but original sin and therefore you know if you look at the epistle of saint james in the bible for example which says that pure religion is to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unspotted from sin in the world which sounds good, you know, do good works and get to heaven. So bitterly has this epistle been hated by Orthodox Christians that they've even questioned whether it is Christian at all. Luther, who came to reform the church in the 1500s, used to tear this out of the Bible wherever he found it. He denounced it as an epistle of straw. Why? Because it advocates goodness and self restraint and says nothing about justification by faith alone that's the only way to heaven now once again as we've said in previous weeks leave non-jewish christians alone to their religion we're not proselytizing religion but we need to know where things stand now about 40 years ago there was a debate that took place in california between some representatives of jews for j and two young rabbis and the young rabbis at one stage asked the Jews for J as follows. If on his deathbed, Hitler would have made a profession of faith in Yeshu, where would he be now? And they said, heaven. Meaning, in Judaism, there is a concept of repentance at the last minute. And that may help a person get into heaven eventually. But there's still a process of Gehenna. You've got to go through the dry cleaners. And that's why we say Kaddish for everyone. You still have to undo all the sins that you committed. It's a process. In Christianity, it's an either or at the moment of death. So Hitler could be in heaven now based on 60 seconds at the very end of his life. So then the young Kirov rabbis asked their follow-up question. What about the one and a half million Jewish children who were murdered in the Holocaust? Given that they never made a profession of faith on their way to the gas chambers, where are they now? And the missionaries had to say, hell, because where else could they be? There is only one way of getting in. But how far does this extend? How far? Um, the answer is related to one of my favorite pastimes, debating missionaries who've come to try and steal Jewish souls. <laughs> How far, indeed, does a profession of faith take you? So, Catholicism, and this is on any Catholic website, will teach you that the church has the power of forgiving sins. It is the duty of the pastor to teach that forgiveness of sins is to be found in the church. And how far does this extend? All sins that precede baptism. When we first make a profession of faith and are cleansed in holy baptism, we receive this pardon entire and unqualified. No sin original, in other words, of Adam, or actual, of my own, 
of commission or omission, something I did or something, etc. Nothing remains to be expiated, no punishment to be endured. This wonderful and divine power was never communicated to creatures until God became man. Right. So, two missionaries came around to me one Sunday, and they start talking to me, and I say, you know, let me get this straight. If I make a profession of faith, I will be forgiven for all my sins. And they say, yep, that's right. So I said, but you have no idea what my past is like. Doesn't matter. He died on the cross for your sins. But I have a very, very black past. Doesn't matter. So I said to them, can I make this profession of faith tomorrow? And they said, yes, no problem. And they are getting excited, right? They've got somebody to, um, you know. Finally. (laughs) Right. And then I said to them, so I can make this profession of faith tomorrow. Yes. How about if between today and tomorrow, I murder both of you? They never got back to me. They started backing down the path. It was the last I heard of them. But this is the truth. I mean, in Judaism, we hold that if you do a Avera Amanas Lassos Chuva, then that doesn't work. That, that I'm guessing they don't have that caveat in Christianity. No, it doesn't matter. Pre-baptism, all sins that precede baptism. If I go back to the sin after baptism, that's a different thing. That's why they have confessional. Fine. But beforehand... And if you take this line of question that I took with them, with any priest, what Christianity is inviting is absolute anarchy. Do whatever you want with your life, make a profession of faith, and it's all gone. No punishment to be endured. That's what their website says, and you don't have to believe me. Well, I guess we could try it out for ourselves. Yeah. Tomorrow morning, go look for a missionary. Try this out on him or her. Follow the same script that I just did. Which basically means that Christianity almost allows sin in some way. It is nihilism and chaos. And therefore, if we were to conclude, Christianity is a fusion of Jewish and pagan ideas. I mentioned the other week that it is Judaism light because you can get into the world to come, which paganism didn't offer a clear vision of. But what you have to do is pretty much pagan rather than action based. So from a social and religious view, it's great. But from a theological point, it's impossible to sustain, and it contains the potential for the breakdown of morality. And historically, it has factual errors and additions in the main narrative, which the church itself now acknowledges. Wow. Quick question, what we were discussing before. A convert to Judaism we also hold is like being reborn. Does that not also wipe away all sin? No, you still have the seven Noahide laws. I mean, if they've committed murder, they need to do repentance for that. Okay, time for an important question, which once again came from a few listeners, particularly David and Daniel, who wrote it in great detail. Doesn't the Gemara date Yeshu to the period of the Greeks? And wasn't he a religious rebel, not a political one? Yes, that is true. The Yeshu in the Gemara is a pupil of Yishobim Parachia, and the Gomorrah, therefore, is dealing with somebody who lived 160 years earlier, who indeed rebelled against the sages, not against the government, during the period of the Greeks. Did two rebels exist, one religious and one political during Roman times? This seems to be the answer, and it would not be a stretch historically, because rebels exist in times of uncertainty and war. 
Um, and in fact, next week we will be dealing with what happened to the Chashmonoim after the Hanukkah story. How do they disappear from the world stage? And we will understand more of the times in which they lived. So I would say hold the question till then. But essentially, that is probably the way to view it. Thank you very much, Roy Hirsch. Another fascinating series. Um, there were a lot more questions that came in, but I, Rabbi Hirsch has responded to each one privately by email, and some of those are lucky enough to make it to the podcast, but we do answer all of them. A couple have written that we hope ours is good enough to be mentioned. Don't worry, you'll get a response either way. Please do carry on sending your questions, feedback to podcasts at jle.org.uk. I'm looking forward to next week. And remember to log in to charityextra.com forward slash JLE from Friday onwards of this week. And if not to donate, at least to see the video. <laughs> and then perhaps you'll donate. Thank you very much. Good night. Thank you.